0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the I Hate Infinite Jest Podcast. Episode 30. Uh, 876 to 906. Our guest this week is Josh Anish. I saw Josh online. He is the host of Should You Read Before You Die podcast. So check out Should You Read Before You Die podcast and check him out at Josh Anish. That is Josh A-N-I-S-H. He said Anish as, in a- Anish as in Danish, and I said Dram as in "Gram," and we both had a little chuckle on one in each other's podcast. I noticed him on the David Foster Wallace subreddit, where I am oh so popular. He uh, pretty much had a thing, of, <laughs> he was promoting his podcast where they discussed David Foster Wallace, and he, big fan of David Foster Wallace, thought Infinite Jest, not the best book. He ranked Infinite Jest number three. Amongst total work, So I wanted to get him on here and discuss all that. Um, Yeah, we had a very good conversation. We talked about a bunch of stuff. We talked about the 90s, which was interesting. We talked about the ending of the book. Guys, this is a first since the last time we saw each other. I have completed Infinite Jest. And I'm going to have to marinate on it a little bit. But as of right now, I think think I like the book even less than I did a few weeks ago. I uh, w- There were certain things I liked and the sheer inability to stick the fucking landing as we got closer and closer to the end, like, huh, he's still in that hospital bed. I'm sure he's going to get out and find his way any second now into Quebec and start digging, but no, no. Just the uh, the David Foster Wallace fan base are a bunch of abandoned children who are trying to ascribe logic and reason based on an errant sentence here and there as to why Daddy left them uh at... so cruel so cruelly. Ugh, guys, I gotta think on it a little bit. I I think I'm just back to hating this book again. I don't know, we'll see. Uh we have Three more episodes after this. I've been saying three episodes, but I decided on a thing I'm going to do. You'll like it. That's all I need to say. The song this week. Whew. Um, I went a little musical with this. I I really think I could write an Infinite Jest musical, and maybe I should. So this will just be our interregnum music leading right into it. Guys, you can find me at Jesse Dram on Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, uh, and Reddit, you can find me at Mr. Jesico on YouTube, at jessydram at gmail.com on Gmail, I was on my own name on Parlor fucking with the, fucking with the far right, but it did not take them long for them to find me and come after me on my public Facebook and, uh, look up information about my family and leave a bunch of comments on some things about how my mom sucks dick. Hate to tell you, buddy, but all our moms suck dick at one point or another. That's how they became our moms. See, when a man and each other, a man and a woman love each other very, very much. Uh, I'll leave it at this. So, oh yeah, so my name on parlor is Bowser from Shanana. Have I ever mentioned my weird love of Shanana? Listen to the Andy Daly podcast pilot project. And the episode with a uh, Wolfman hot dog, and you will discover how I got into "Shana Na," unironically from a comedy podcast. But the song this week is uh, would be an intersection, an interlude from a musical where the Wraith, James Orrin Incandenza Senior, is feeling very low. No, Junior. Is feeling very low about being unable to communicate with Hal beyond the afterlife, and he has some advice for Hal. That uh, nice little double entendre. So I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode again. Josh Anish, part thirty, pages eight seventy-six to nine oh six, and this song is "Break the Mold" (parentheses, Wraith's Lament) (end, parentheses). I'll see you guys next week.
1: I lost my boy before I even had him a budding flower hidden all too soon. How can I? shrinks before my eyes i lost my boy just like i lost his brother only exists just to mirror another but what if there's a way to relieve his anxiety Something so incredible, he left to ask me, Dad, please tell me more. The perfect blend of light and sound and vision. A keyhole leading out from his locked door. A bridge that can connect all this division and leave him wanting more. Go and break the mold, my son It will be the only battle That this wraith has ever won Break the mold and find your soul Dig deep down and you will find Your father's loving mind Go and break the mold
0: All right, everybody, here we are. I Hate Infinite Jest, episode 30, pages 876 to 906. My guest this week from the Should You Read Before You Die podcast, Josh Anish. How you doing, buddy?
2: Hey, Jesse. Good. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, real quick, where can we find you? What do you got to promote? Like you said, I have a podcast called Should You Read Before You Die. It's kind of short, half-hour blocks about should you read certain huge classics or famous books before you die. I did an episode on Gravity's Rainbow, and I did an episode on Proust, and I did an episode on Infinite Jest, which Jesse saw, um, I think, on the Reddit thread about David Foster Wallace. Um, Have a listen. There's about nine episodes now, and thank you. There you go. Yeah, so that's where I first saw you was on that Reddit, and uh, you seemed as popular as I
0: am in that group because they do not like criticism of their boy, David Foster Wallace, um, you had a very interesting take in there that I wanted to pursue. It seemed like you actually, if not a a fan, you would at least like appreciate David Foster Wallace, but you were of the belief that Infinite Jest is not the top of his uh, catalog. Is, is Do I recall that right?
2: That's exactly right. I had it as the, the third best book. We ranked them like the nerds that we were. We had the Pale King first, which was published posthumously, which I love. Mm-hmm. The second one um, was... Uh, uh, Sorry, brain fart. It was um, broom, "Broom of the System." No, it was. Uh, I'm looking at my bookshelf now. Interviews with Hideous Men. It was a supposedly fun thing I'll never do it again.
0: Oh, okay. I, I do prefer his essay work over his fiction stuff. Which, yeah. um, So, what makes you what makes you put uh, Pale King so much higher, or more importantly, for the purpose of this podcast, put Infinite Jest that much lower?
2: I mean, I'm sure you agree. Let's just be honest; it's like really freaking hard to read. And I've aborted it several times. And there's a 30-page footnote about eschatology around page 300 that submarine my efforts several times. Yep. Um, I can pretend that it's brilliant. And I get all of it, and that I love it, but it's not totally true, right?
0: So you are you're in you're in a unique guest slot just because I typically have only read this book as we've gone along. You are the first person I am speaking to since finishing this book. And I must admit, everything I was coming around on and liking, I uh, I, I like so much less now that I have completed the book.
2: I, Why do you say that? Um,
0: because I feel like a lot of this was like, uh, coming around on things was some idea of uh, like, okay, maybe he'll stick the landing. I came, I came ahead on some of these things. Instead, what I'm reading right now is a lot of... Uh, because I've been reading a lot of like the theories online about what happens as I go. And what I was not aware is that the bulk of the ending that the fans discuss ad finitum ad nauseum is inferred in like a sentence or two. So <laughs> after looking at all that, I'm realizing I'm sorry, fan base, cause I'm sure some of you are listening to this. It really does feel like a massive children trying to assign meaning to like, you know, like dad's gonna be back after those cigarettes, right? I'm sure he went to Quebec and had to dig somebody up. Like, buddy, it's it's okay.
2: Like,
1: the,
2: well, he the, has the built-in out that is called infinite jest, right? That he can kind of bail out and not give you a satisfactory ending because he's infinitely jesting with you, right?
0: Supposedly, I don't know. I think a lot of a lot of people read intent to David Foster Wallace, where it only reads as compulsion to me. Which again, it's there's so many ways to bend over backwards and suck your own dick over this book like it's unsatisfying because he meant to do it like guys come on i don't know
2: that's why the pale king is better he it makes sense and it's not that challenging and it's rewarding and it's emotional I've, i've already decided i want to read more david
0: foster wallace but at the same time i really i i cannot have it assigned to like a project like this Again, just because it's been, I don't think I would have gotten through Infinite Jest otherwise, and I don't think I would have liked what I liked otherwise if I wasn't doing like these small bite-sized chunks for this show. But at the same time, it was a lot to take on. Like, we're, we're wrapping up very soon. It's been six months I've been reading this goddamn thing. Yeah,
2: uh, it took me about the same
0: yeah. So, what is your literary background besides this? Like, what's your typical taste, and how did you actually find this book in David
2: Foster Wallace in the first place? Um, I have a master's in fiction writing from Brooklyn College. Ooh, okay. While I was getting that, I found that I was reading a lot more than writing. Mm-hmm. And then I started to get a PhD at Fordham, but I dropped out of that. That was a great decision because it was costing me so much money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I just became like a reader for the rest of my life. I, I, uh, I'm in tech now, but I am a power reader to, to it doesn't really benefit me much, but I probably read about 50 to 60 difficult books a year. Wow. Um, kind of a stick. And then I started the podcast, you know, I'm in my forties now during the pandemic, just to keep myself sharp. Um, mm-hmm. But I became a reader to the detriment of my writing, but it's, I taught undergrad literature for a while, broken in college in my twenties, but now I'm just kind of a reader.
0: See, I've heard that from a lot of people who went uh, the academic route into English and literature that it like robs a lot of the enjoyment of reading for people. Like, I've heard plenty of people like, oh yeah, when I got out of school, I didn't read anything for years. Because people are dictating what you're going to read. You want to try to choose it yourself. Right. Right. And it can, and I, I can see how it could uh, suck the life out of you a little bit. So, but you, you're, you're a fan in general of David Foster Wallace is what you're saying. Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, he went to the same college I did. Uh, mm. I have friends that kind of have walked in circles with him. Um, yeah, I love him. I think his nonfiction, like you were saying, is hilarious. Um, but let's, you know, we can't deify our, our, our heroes, right? Infinite Jest is sloppy. And I, I want to talk about addiction as we get into it because I have some thoughts about that in, in, in his writing. Um, so I reread the section today and uh, mm. you can tell it's, I All think right. there's a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, 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 stimulants involved. Okay well we can actually get into our notes then however
0: I would like to say just because uh, you mentioned the word deify back there I haven't announced it yet I've been hinting that I'm going to change the title of the podcast as we get outside of uh, Infinite Jest and other books but it does look like the name is probably going to be Kill Your Gods because that is really what I'm kind of going for like everybody's allowed to like what they like but I think there's a certain fun in taking a The holy and like really let's see just how holy this is so i like it do it nice all right so let's get right into this we're on a we're on a crunch today because you got kids and uh let's make it work so like i said i'm just gonna read through this i'll probably skip around a little bit interrupt anytime you got anything to talk about anything okay yep all right, 876 to 883, November 20th, year of the depend adult undergarment, partial transcript of weather-delayed meeting with Tyne and company. Tyne is in Boston, noting the snow. The topic is on Maureen Hooley, the vice president of children's entertainment. They're discussing a new video, primarily for white English speakers, four to 12 years old, with stats on just how long the attention span is planned to hold, and violent imagery at 14 seconds in. Tyne's son, Tyne Jr., is also on the line. They're discussing a PSA character, Uh, Yeah, PSA character No Thanky Hanky uh, That's a great name Warning children against watching unlabeled cartridges Um, So they appear to be filming PSAs To counteract the inevitable dissemination Of the entertainment They're pointing out how a dangerous cartoon film cartridge With a misleading yellow smiley sticker on it uh, Commercial would feature the cartridge Being kind and alluring And then turning into a mean cartridge With a plaid ear flap cap And hairy dock worker limbs kidnapping a child in his trunk and taking them away forever even an alternate warning kids if they see their parents looking googly-eyed at something and non-responsive to watch and run and tell a policeman a Mr. Yee on the line has an epileptic seizure a co-worker says not to mention it when he recovers the embarrassment just triggers more seizures so just a weird little thing out of nowhere there I like that they're kind of planning ahead for the inevitability of uh, the entertainment getting out
2: there. Um, did you have any particular notes on that? Did it remind? Did you watch Mad Men? It reminded me a little bit of the carousel scene with Don Draper, which is which is a more happy scene when he's presenting uh, Pol- was it Polaroid to the executives. I, I actually, I, I have not seen Mad Men, but I'm a, aware enough of the gist of that to uh, get where they're going. Yeah, hmm. and also wasn't there a part in that in that kind of meeting where like people get addicted to watching the uh, the commercial, right? They're trying to like you can't get enough of the commercial i think that's, he, that's part of it i think to me. Oh,
0: i might i i might i miss little notes on this all th- that's one of the problems with trying to summarize this book as you go is you don't know what's important
2: and what's not everything just kind of like blends into each other yeah it's like game of thrones you can open 47 doors and it's awesome and then it, you can only close seven of them at the end and by the end it's too late no one cares exactly Okay, Uh, 883 to 896, a nurse
0: brings with him a notebook and pen, which relieves Gately that uh, Joel understood him. He's still getting flashes of ghost words he doesn't know. So, Josh, we used to have a segment on here called Word of the Week that uh, we would just forget to do every now and again. But now that we have these wraith ghost words being projected, we have all kinds of words jumping up. So let's just jump in real quick. Uh, Sinistral, that would be left-handed which Mm. I feel like everyone knows sinister is left-handed, but sinistral being a variant on that. Uh, Liebestad, an aria or duet in opera marking the suicide of two lovers, particularly associated with Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, or in German, Tristan und Isolde. (laughs) And a metaphoric, having eyes at the ends of stalks like a snail or an insect. So... Sinistral Liebestad, and a metaphoric. don't be a Don be sure to use these terms this week in conversation to raise yourself above the scum of your fellow man that has been the word of the week segment
2: um question for you Jesse so when you in your hatred of the book mm-hmm. does it bother you that like no one knows those words you and I are smart guys we don't know those words do you have to run to the dictionary and google it and figure out like, do you do you hate that like,
0: um, very early on into reading this People were giving me recommendations Of how to read the book properly And one of them had said like you know what really helps Is if you have a dictionary by you At all times and right away It's like you do not know what a good time is Because that sounds fucking horrible Right Um, I mean it's I have no problem looking stuff up And I guess I'm learning words that I'll never ever use But it to me it just it takes me out of the book so much because it is, again, reminding me of the it seems like the anti death of the author, because there's there's no way I can read any of this because every time I would say, like every seven pages or so there is something that just makes me go like,
2: oh, David got bored and had to do a little flex here. Just to, just yeah, to- well said. same with me, like the section didn't have many footnotes. And then the first footnote was like 15 pages in, I forgot about them and I was like, me to the back, and I'm like, You fucker. Like, I've thought about him while going to the back to the footnotes, you know, which is what he wants, right?
0: Supposedly, supposedly, it's what he wants. I, I don't know. If I don't know what he wants, there's a thousand fans out there willing to tell me exactly what he wanted, and they don't agree with each other, but they're all right somehow. <laughs> okay. Um, we get an appearance from one of my favorite characters, uh, Ferocious Francis G. He's there to visit Gately, oxygen tank in hand. Gately is trying to write responses, but it's all illegible as he has nothing to lean the notebook against and can't see his handwriting. Francis recounts what he's heard about the canucking incident, that Gately fights like a natural, like he was born in a bar fight. Though apparently word has gotten out about what Lenz did to deserve the attention, referring to him as a pet cutter. Gately wants to share with his sponsor his enlightenment suffering through this without painkillers. While they're talking Gately's Pakistani MD waltzes in the doctor is suggesting and tempting high power painkillers a constant temptation for Gately. He hopes that ferocious Francis will put this raghead in his place, which uh, I unfortunately have a dumb little story about that. My stepfather had a real bumpkin piece of shit best friend whose uh, nickname around town was big country who after nine 11 would, uh, repeatedly brag about how he went into after nine 11, he did his patriotic duty by going into seven 11 and harassing those dot heads that done blew up the buildings. Change the world, buddy. Change the world. <laughs> That's right. One person if fighting on every front, the smallest guy, has a thing to do, even if he's attacking the wrong fucking people. God, I did not. I immediately was reminded of that asshole while reading this. So, of course, I had to put that little in there. Um, So the doctor warns Gately that as he heals, the pain will increase due to the nerves regenerating and that he also abstains from... uh, chemicals as a practicing muslim but even with that he would accept drugs if told by his doctor as his god does not wish undue suffering on his children the situation gives gately the psychosomatic pleasurable taste in his mouth that would accompany a shot of Demerol. wallace does a neat thing here with the sing-songy doctor dressed in white professing his admiration at abstaining but saying it's time to give in and his physical presence completely hiding ferocious francis behind him which is actually a callback to uh, another image Gately had of his erection completely obfuscating an image of Joel. (laughs) Um... Gately's already slipping and justifying it, thinking it's just a stopgap. It's nowhere near the same thing as running off and getting fucked up. Francis gets up to leave, telling Don he'll come back when he's squared this off. The doctor mistakes Francis for Don's father and asks him to implore his son to accept his medical opinion of painkillers. Francis says it's the kid's decision. It's his pain, his decision. He's the only one that can decide. The doctor continues praising the drugs, and Don reaches through the bar with his left hand and grabs the doctor by the balls and squeezes tight. The doc emits a high-pitched womanly shriek that wakes Don up. It's all been a dream. So, um, yeah, there's more there, but we could stop and talk about that whole section. I really enjoyed how well put together that was with uh, the entire idea of temptation and obviously a literal angel and devil figure there. Um, I know you wanted to talk about some addiction stuff, so maybe this is the spot to do that.
2: Yeah, I think while he was still alive, RIP, people were kind of hoping that he was just an expert about these things and not, not terribly afflicted with addiction. Um, but after he passed away, his dad kind of collaborated on a New Yorker article uh, and it kind of saying that he did suffer from addiction in a major way, even with antidepressants. But reading this chapter, from someone I've suffered from addiction myself, like he clearly uh, uh, has been in a rehab facility. <laughs> if not, he would, he has um, done an extremely excellent job of journalism, but just even even hearing about the treatments and, and the size of the, of the doses, um, I think it's very clear that one he has suffered in the past from from painkiller addiction and two um that he was probably using some type of narcotics while writing this book because i think part of the sprawl um is probably caused from some type of enhancements what that would saying? make sense um his, his dad said he was taking kind of like dirty uh 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 outdated uh uh antidepressants when he passed away and he was trying to tell david to like to, to modernize his 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 treatment and he wouldn't Um, He was taking care of stuff in the 70s. Um, So it's it's all kind of sad. See, I'm curious uh, about how that actually works, because one of the, um,
0: you know, as I got to learn this and the fan base, I learned more about David Foster Wallace himself. Got to be honest, at first, I didn't I didn't care much for the man from what I saw, especially before I started all this. I watched that end of the tour movie, which seemed like classic retcon lionizing of like you know the dead guy which is also i mean it's it's narrative film that's that's what a biopic is to you know like yeah let's make johnny cash look like a good guy and leave out all the horrible shit like it's kind of how those things are put together but um i was actually really touched to the story of his suicide just because the thing i didn't realize was uh the fact that supposedly he had been on a medication for forever and then I think he was like having stomach issues due to it at some point. So he tried to get off it, get on something else. Nothing else really worked for him. Then he tried to get back on that original drug and that also no longer worked for him. Mm-hmm. So hearing that a little bit that he was taking like old stuff from the seventies also kind of rings to me, like maybe a little desperate, may- maybe a little neurotic. I mean, you know, you tried a bunch of new stuff. It doesn't work. You get in your head. Like, well, maybe the
2: old stuff, there's something there. I don't know. His girlfriend used to make him pinky swear that he wouldn't kill himself that day, every day for that year. Wow. Yeah. See, as as
0: grim as that is, you know, at a certain point, that was like, this is our cute little thing. Like, you know, don't kill yourself, pinky swear. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway,
2: so I I was just, I was just, I I I think I was in denial that he was suffering and then rereading this now, it's like clearly that that was part of the the equation.
1: Yeah, it
0: definitely... The, this, the sections with addiction, there, there's different chunks of this book that evoke different feelings. Uh, I would say a lot of the math stuff, I, people really get off to how intelligent David Foster Wallace was. But at the same time, a lot of the math stuff for me really rings like he had a friend who knew math well, and he pretty much asked that person, like, where can I fit this in? Like. That, that seems very much like a pick and choose kind of thing, whereas a lot of this addiction stuff feels really lived in.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of writers just don't want to be labeled as being right brains. So they're like, well, I'm also good at math. Yeah. <laughs> so it yeah. covers all the bases. I'm, I'm both. Yeah, no, everybody
0: wants to be like a nice, finely balanced thing, but it's you're usually good at one thing or another. I personally have gotten around that by just convincing myself that math and science is dumb, and I will just, <laughs> it's not sure, true. I, I will listen to what they tell me, but that's enough. Um, okay, the thoughts of addiction and pleasant drug memories are a lifelong feature of addicts, across the bear. Gately does his best to think of anything else. The bumper stickers on the MP's truck, a lover who said she couldn't come without getting burned with a cigarette, which induced Gately's first attempt to quit smoking. Gately switched to Demerol from Percocet, which just hit him a little wrong. Demerol was more expensive, but easier to get. He reminisces the specifics of the tablets themselves. He reminisces of the crew of finger breakers. He did drugs with, they had a scam of faking good re- uh, credit reports, renting, l- renting luxury apartments and appliances, then selling the appliance for their fix. One who had a high libido for a drug addict would take girls back to the luxury apartment and repeatedly yell, God damn it. We've been robbed to excuse the drug. Then they walked into,
2: I laughed out loud at that part. Like, Do you, I mean, I know in your, in your torment with the book, do you find it funny sometimes? Here's the thing. Uh, I think the frustration has
0: robbed me of a lot of the funniness. Cause I had a, I had had a particular argument with people online as to whether or not the book was funny. I said, the book's really not funny. Then in the midst of like an episode I was doing with a guest, there were a few things in my notes that were funny. And then the guy pointed out like, well, what about this part? What about this part? It's like, Okay, it, the book is actually very fucking funny. I'm full of shit. I just I don't remember the funny parts just cuz the frustration is so annoying to me. But stuff like that like yes, that was really funny. And also, we're going to get a little further in but uh Don Don's uh burglary buddy Fackelman and the fact that his quote is always like that's a goddamn lie. Like that was his catchphrase for everything. Like okay, that's some funny shit. That works for me.
2: I mean, your your comedian is different. I feel like it's um Writing funny fiction is hard because, like, when you're a comedian, there's a cadence, right? There's a buildup, there's this and that. There's when a got, rhythm. There's
0: context.
2: Yeah, when you have 300 pages or a thousand pages like this one, it's so difficult to like have buildup and payoff. It's it's a challenge. It's not only different. It's a
0: little bit like anathema to the stand-up thing, just because again with the uh, stand up you can feel it like kind of building up you know the structure a little bit whereas in books it actually uh, one of like the hackiest things known to stand ups is to just say something wacky with no background thing like
1: well, yeah and yeah.
0: then i i was walking down the street and then my asshole exploded like uh, all right guy that's good to know but that's how that shit reads in narrative fiction like there's a few times in here where like we're we're sitting with hal and he's like i don't know whether to go left or right stice is doing something i have to fart but have not yet farted yet and like some people find that hilarious but like i just imagine it in that rhythm and it just it, it sounds dumb to me yeah i hear you so i would say the weird thing though is like some of the funniest shit i've ever read has been uh like nonfiction, like uh like, I've read some biographies that have, like, cracked me up. Um, I don't know if you've ever read – John Hodgman has a series of books. He's a pseudo-comedian. I don't even know what to call the guy. He's most known from, like, a series of Apple ads. But, yeah, he has one of the funniest series of books I've ever read that, like, they're, they're pitched kind of like these atlases, just like general world knowledge. And then they're just full of, like, like a, thou- a thousand hobo names you never knew.
2: <laughs> i'll check it out I, I, I don't know that one but i'll check it out yeah uh I, do you find the book particularly funny uh m- maybe not like on a per capita basis no i think supposedly a fun thing i'll never do again the actual essay about going on a cruise while misanthropic and snobby is pretty funny um for those who don't know he he goes on a cruise one of these kind of terrible cruises in the caribbean where they have like dinner at midnight and this and, and talent shows and he just kind of he's on drugs there not it's not a fiction just writing about how awful it is it's funny but you have to be in the right mood for it. See, one of the things that
0: blows my mind a little bit about the nonfiction work is that uh so much of Infinite Jest, people praise like its sincerity versus irony and sincerity versus irony. Where like a lot of his nonfiction does, while he has a lot of clever things to say about it, it does seem a little like I'm going to show up to this stupid thing and shit on it a little bit, which is like peak '90s irony.
2: That's a good point. He does. He, he has a good one where he goes to that that porn. Uh, uh, oh yeah, conference. big. Yeah, big red sun, but I feel like he doesn't hate it. That that one, he's kind of like more on the bus rather than peeing on the bus. But uh, I hear <laughs> yeah. you. Oh, and one other thing I noticed,
0: just because I have to point out every flaw in this book that I can find, is uh, so one of the things I'm confused about because this might just be a projection from the wraith, which you know, uh, go figure. A perfect way to explain it. Um, if if this whole thing is a hallucination supposedly with the doctor and ferocious Francis they're not actually there yet ferocious Francis knows the truth about lens uh killing that dog which Gately does not know like he had he would have no way of knowing this so I guess you could kind of say the wraith projected but then how the fuck does the
2: wraith know I don't know I hear you that's what I'm talking about it's just it's sloppy like I I don't know if this would get this get published now um I think they edited it down. I don't know. Maybe he had some stature at the time, but it's definitely sloppy.
0: That's one of the infuriating things where it's like, you can write
2: 1,100 pages, but like, that's the ending you gave me. Like, yeah, he probably negotiated that, you know, this will be the end. You know, I will, you will take my, you will take my, my, my manuscript, you know, like this.
0: I just, I don't get, I don't get what a lot of people get out of this book. Like, there's still good stuff in it, but it's like, I, I, people, people defend this book as if they're being paid to. And for me, it's like, how can you, how can you justify that kind of
2: ending after all this? But I don't, I don't know. Like when, you're, when you're running and you're on like mile 15, you're like, wow, I feel great. I'm so in shape. It's like when you're on like page 700 here, some mm-hmm. people think, wow, I, I'm feeling so smart. It makes you feel smart.
0: Yeah, uh, no, definitely. People are getting a lot of validation after. That's another thing that bugs, bugs me about this. is like, I've read a lot of people in the fan base online. It's like, this isn't that hard of a book to read. Like, you are full of shit. Like it's not and, and the people who say it is hard to read they try to make it like it's about the vocabulary no it's very clunky storytelling it is bringing you in and then it's trying to stockholm syndrome you like well i've put this much time in so i can't say that i've wasted all of this i
2: yeah without being too self satisfied i read i read books difficult books that's like my thing and this is one of the most difficult to read let's right. be honest.
0: All right. Well, you know what? Completely off topic then. Uh, what would you say are like your three favorite books ever complicated or not complicated that you would say that you would say like the, the thing people are trying to make infinite, Jest like that. Great. What are some books that are actually that great in your opinion?
2: If you're looking at like, should you read before you die? Like the big ones, like I'm looking at my bookshop now, like Moby Dick is excellent. Okay. Um, Anna Karenina. Um a, a, a sleeper will be a lonesome dove. I thought like people don't know the shtick, but lonesome dove is amazing. Um, who, wrote, who wrote lonesome dove? Um, Larry McMurtry. It's like real quick. It's like uh, uh, the civil war is over and there are these like te- these Texas Rangers like we're bored and drinking a lot in like Texas and they need something to do. And they just like walk with all their animals to Montana. <laughs> it's freaking hilarious. And there's, okay. and there's some Native Americans trying to kill them. It's pretty awesome. Uh, magic mountain by thomas mann is amazing that's kind of like the, the the auto the the didactic brilliant book that infinite Jess wants to be um what do you think what are some classics for you ooh
0: um i i am a big fan of like the classic clax classic bleh, the classic classics like uh i i'm a big fan of dostoevsky um Brothers Karamazov has to be up there. Crime and Punishment has to be up there. Just because I I love the psychology that goes into all that, like the in depth kind of thing. Um, loved Les Misérables when I read it. I don't know. I'm actually blanking right now. I'm trying to look back on my bookshelf. I mean, there's some stuff that I love that I wouldn't put up there. Like, uh, like one of the things I want to do on this podcast i would like to do slaughterhouse five not because i don't like slaughterhouse five i love vonnegut i just
2: always felt that that was like really overrated in vonnegut's catalog i hear you i read that when i was like 17 and like blew my mind then i looked at it again when i was 30 and i kind of agree with you it was a little bit overrated whereas i feel like cat's cradle has never ever disappointed me cat's cradle is by far and away my favorite vonnegut um, the Adventures of Augie March is a good book by Saul Bellow. Anyway, we could go on forever, but this okay. one I would not have up there. I, 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 yeah, a a casual reader, I, I don't think you get to read this book before you die. Right. Okay.
0: So that's kind of a spoiler for the episode. Still, go, go check out the episode, Should You Read Before You Die, Infinite Jest. Um, all right, let's get back to it. These drug mates told Gately they don't know why he chose to be a drug addict. So many drug addicts are garbage people who are only nice when they're high. Don was a stand-up, cheerful guy who retreated into himself when he was high. Uh, McDade and Deal stopped by from Ennit. They have bad news. Still no sight of the gun. Seems likely that Lens might have nabbed it himself, but Lenz himself may have been spotted on Skid Row, all dressed up in a sombrero. Obviously fucked up. They complain a building on the Ennit strip is being leased to mental health issues. Agoraphobics. They're planning a joke invitation to invite the agoraphobics over for a barbecue mixer. I find that hilarious, even as somebody who has dealt with a little bit of agoraphobia myself. So huh. um. They tell Gately they can't testify in his favor due to their own legal issues, which upsets Don greatly. Don feels guilty and betrayed, and uh, he wonders if God is, in fact, the vengeful and cruel figurant that Boston AA swears it isn't. He stayed sober and did the right thing, and yet he's being karmically fucked over left and right. McDade and Deal leave as a nurse comes in in a sexy white nurse outfit to, uh, oh yeah, she's giving she's giving him an
2: enema, and he is mortified by all of it. <laughs> Taking a step back, it's it's been a while for me. Now that you're like so immersed in the book, what do you think about the like the year of the depends undergarment shtick? Like, how does that I I
0: I think it's dumb, but whatever. It's it's fine. Um,
2: I don't know. Is, it, it, is it like the post post revolutionary? Is post revolution with Canada right? Is that why? It's something to, to do with that. You know what part of it is? Is I feel like it annoys
0: me a little bit. The entire uh, because he got so close to right when he talks about um, the way like the broadcast companies fell through and all this cartridge stuff came up. Like, obviously that's very similar to Netflix, but the idea that like the fact that he got so close, whereas in real, in reality what happened was like, well, that Netflix stuff was just paid for. But the, the idea that like the lack of broadcast TV would create such a dearth of advertising that they would have to sell the rights to naming the years as opposed to, like, advertising is a beast. It will find any fucking hole there is and advertise to you. I I cannot imagine any situation where the advertising and marketing industry is hard up and the government needs to help them out.
2: Yeah, this is a dumb pet theory of mine, too, where, like, he was so obsessed with this notion of what postmodernism is, like postmodern fiction, Mm -hmm. that he made it a postmodern even like year system with the year of the depends old undergarment whatever it's all undergarment so it actually is literally postmodern it's not 2004 anymore it's something else just to like hammer the point home
0: yeah I mean it's not it's not a terrible idea by the way when I referred to this novel as postmodern quite a few DFW fans I responded like actually it's post postmodern like oh what a what a perfectly beautiful term to say absolutely nothing like
2: I think it was more the end of something, than the beginning of something, put it that way.
0: Yes, there's uh, one thing I've said about this book a lot is it is dripping with the 90s in a way that uh, I feel like a lot of people really don't want to admit how much it kind of dates the book. But um, yeah, I mean, even uh, I I was a child in the 90s, but at the same time, I was like in touch with enough of like the pop culture at the time, because my parents were young I was watching like the state on MTV at like seven years old and loving it but uh yeah
1: Here's an
2: example. He in the beginning of the book he poops on video conferencing he thinks that the reason why video conferencing didn't work in the 80s is because like if I was talking to you I wouldn't want you to see me because I was cleaning up my house I was multitasking and that was mm-hmm. like on my cover mm-hmm. but now we're at the age of zoom and that's all we're doing <laughs> so that was just I mean please writers don't have to be right all the time but he was incorrect in that regard as well right and just
0: a lot of that sincerity versus irony thing i i I don't know i feel like even for the irony of the time it's kind of overstated a little bit i i don't know another thing i could go forever on but um well i don't know you you were you're you're a bit older than me you were like what uh you were pretty much there in the 90s would you say like that was your coming of age decade yeah, I was ages
2: like 13 to 23 in the 90s
0: Okay, and that's By the way, that's one of those weird Generational arguments people always have Where it's like, well, what makes it Da-da-da, for me as like a millennial I always look at look at it as It's literally coming of age I turned 13 in 2000 So like, once you turn 13 13 to like 23 Is going to be like your era No matter totally. what year it I is I I'm so, 10 years old so, all right. So what do you think then of like the nineties? Was it as dripping with irony as we, as we now recall, looking back on it, just because just, we've seen before, like, you know, the way people think of the sixties, they're like, Oh, these long haired hippies. And then you see video of Woodstock and like one out of every 20 people has, has like really hippied it up. And it's more just like regular people.
2: It's a good question. I haven't thought about this much, but I would say the nineties was were exuberant. It was like the time of Clinton and the time of the internet and a time of great prosperity and peace. Um, but it wasn't, I don't think it was really ironic because I'm just making this up. I haven't thought of this before because um, okay. the lack of the internet. So we weren't like taking notes on ourselves yet. There wasn't Twitter yet to so like, so it's so like Michael Jordan would have an awesome game. And then it would just be like, we'd DFI him and go to bed. There was no kind of echo chamber. Mm. Um, so I don't know about the irony. I just think it was kind of like a period of, of growth without much re- reflection. <laughs> okay
0: that, that's an interesting way to way to put it because again i feel like in the zeitgeist we look back on it as like nirvana and like the beginning of uh obviously don't trust the man goes back to the uh, liberal political radicals in previous generations but that seems to be the first one where like the general pop culture was like you know don't believe the man but yeah it's a good point yeah because i mean even if you think back to the 60s and shit it wasn't like the art really reflected that either that uh that that political turmoil like most of them were just like there. I mean you know Jimi Hendrix didn't have much to say about war but he had a lot to say about you know purple haze and kissing skies so <laughs> okay we can jump back into this uh 896 to 902 we are ba- in the last episode it was actually the first time we had the first person's perspective of Hal, which now I've read through enough and realized we stay in that first person's perspective for the rest of the book uh, one thing I will say I like about David Foster Wallace a lot I do like his use of perspective jumping in and out. Um, one of the things he does is where he has third person omniscient, yet he's using the same verbiage and beliefs of the character he's discussing yeah. in that text. I, I find that really neat and not something I see not something I'd seen before. And if I had seen, hadn't done that
2: well. So on the other hand, I think he he knows he should write about nature and like what's happening outside. And he does it but it feels forced he's not a poet no exactly yeah he's too he's too analytical to be a poet he'll um, try to describe like the trees in, in illinois and it's just like ah, he's like doing it it's like perfunctory yeah okay all
0: right um so Hal, while walking back to check on ortho and listen to music he struck with a bolt of panic typically only felt in the middle of a match he never felt this way off court lyle had explained to him that unexplained panic sharpens the senses beyond enduring. So. I found this section, I suffered from panic attacks for years, so I was a little, I know this isn't exactly what it is, because we have the whole hallucinogenic thing here, but um, Hal says everything has too much detail, but isn't disorienting, again, not what I find in a panic attack, I agree with everything has too much detail, but it's very disorienting, like you can't help but be aware of fucking everything, because your brain is in scared animal mode. Um, the world became almost edible. Then came the paralyzing overcognitive bad trip feeling. Hal feels overwhelmed with the familiarity. Hal envisions all the chicken he will ever eat for his entire life stacked up for him in mass. That's pretty funny. Uh, Hal, Hal lays down in the cartridge viewing room and waits for it to pass. Hal goes through the de- details of himself and his family. Uh, it, this is one of the things that annoys me a little bit about the book when like we'll suddenly get all this exposition just dropped in a character talking to himself. Yeah. And also, yeah. It, it, one of the things I c- I'll complain about in the upcoming episodes is like, we're 900 pages in. Like, these fucking characters are developed already. Like, stop giving me these tidbits and give me goddamn story, you know?
2: Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's not the same, but it's kind of like, I don't like the, uh, like, an oral history, you, you know, like when like people just talk about like the game, it's like, it's easier to do that, just record them. It's harder to actually write the fiction, the story, and narrative right. and, and fit right. in it in. <laughs>
0: um, so here's some of the details we have here. Uh his maternal grandfather's alcoholism, that Orin had been his grandfather and brother's name and himself's middle name, Avril and Hal's respective heights. Avril has no middle name. Like I mentioned before, Hal needs to fart but has not. Details about Eschaton. He notes a man at the gas station the other day told Hal he was not speaking when Hal thought he was, that his father thought the same of him. Hal notes that his mother makes herself completely open to her children in every way, except for answering anything regarding her relationship with James. She never forbade questions. She was just so obviously pained by the topic that it felt cruel to ask. Orrin alleged that when he took the mom's car back in the day, you could see smears of bare feet on the windows. That's right, because Avril's a slut, as we've been told. Um, John Wayne's meltdown has been attributed to an allergic reaction to a nasal decongestant. He's already back at school and excelling past everyone else again. Avril has stayed by his side the whole night at the hospital. How waxes poetic on how impossible it would seem to him to be interested in something for years and years and devote yourself to it. Admirable and at the same time pathetic. We are all dying to give our lives away to something, maybe. So I actually like that. What would you say is something that uh, you were interested in for years and devoted yourself to?
2: That I no longer care about? That too. Um that's a good question. Like, uh, some sports, like I used to be a huge, like I used to be able to name like 400 people in the NFL or major league baseball. Mm. And now I can, now I just do not care. Like I, I do care about the NBA, but like, I just don't care anymore at all. Um, or even writing fiction, like, um, just taking a step back. Like I used to copy that David Foster Wallace type of writing where you could just write a thousand statements Mm. and if 104 of them are good, you win. Mm -hmm. But, um, so it's like, but now I don't care about writing fiction. Like a friend of mine, I, I used to have an insecurity that I wanted to be a published novelist because I wanted to be smart, but now I'm like way over that. It's just like, I had a friend, she wrote a book for four years, sold it for $5,000 total. Um, oh God. So I've even lost the desire to be a novelist, for better or worse.
0: See, I, I am kind of in love, and maybe this shows me to be a cynical person. I love stories of uh, people just being gobsmacked by the reality of their actual dreams. Um, so part of that, I, I, I was involved in a lot of independent filmmaking in my early twenties. Uh, I was with a crew of people. I tended to do the music, although music in general was something that like, I I hadn't written a song in years. And then I started doing this podcast and I started fucking around and writing songs about infinite jest, but like, (laughs) that was something I did for years and years. I wanted to be my career. And then. Like the band I was in broke up, I started doing comedy and I just completely fell out of love with music instead for comedy just because it was so, it was so much, it's not that it was easier, it was that I could do it more independently. I didn't need a drummer, I didn't need like computer software for a drum machine, I didn't need to teach somebody, I could come up with an idea and go up and do it later that night. Yeah. But oh, but the thing I was going to make of independent film, there was a movie we made with another production studio in Philadelphia, and we had a falling out with this team in the meantime, and there was all this fighting and blah blah blah. Long story short, their crew won. However, the only thing their crew actually won was like, they made a movie that got a little bit of distribution, and then they also fell off the face of the earth. So I was struck with this real like, oh, we were all fighting to be like the king of the mountain of just dog shit it's not like anybody won they beat us to nothing and now we're all irrelevant
2: yeah that happens at work too like bad startups people will, will be will be contracting people are fighting for power I'm like guys we're fighting over scraps there's nothing there
0: exactly yeah I recently got let go from a startup that uh, absolutely had something to do with the boss's wife who would not be the fucking janitor there if she was not the boss's wife but oh well I can stop talking about
2: that now um <laughs> I have an idea for a podcast about work scandals. Maybe we, people could anonymize them, but I'd like to hear like all the gossip about what happens. Cause I feel like we spent all this time on like organizational theory um, and it all goes to shit because human beings are so sloppy and dirty and human that like strange things happen at work. That wouldn't be a bad idea for a
0: podcast. It would be really interesting. Um, okay, let's roll through this cause we got uh, like 10 more minutes left. Um, da, 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 da. Oh, uh, Hal notes that the whole notion of this academy is to get children to invest tons of time and effort into something before the whys and the what's really creep up. Hal notes that in Hamlet, despite Hamlet being famously paralyzed with doubt, he never doubts that it was an actual ghost that spoke to him. While lying on the floor, Hal mentions that Avril and CT probably aren't really related. Again, you're dropping this in very late in the fucking book. Why did you spend all this time convincing me they're incestuous brother and sister just to drop in? Like, also, he's not really... Um, Avril's father went on a typical bender and showed up with a widow named Elizabeth Tavis as his new bride she was a dwarf along with her came little CT whose father had died in a freak accident during a game of darts it seems hinted that Mario has teeth just like the dwarf woman and bears her resemblance we've heard a few times Mario might be CT's kid Um, Oren got all of this info out of CT when he was seven and in the waiting room while Avril was giving birth to Mario Hal is overwhelmed with horizontality and that's that section who hasn't been overwhelmed by horizontality, you know, I was last night. There you go.
2: Seven o'clock at night.
0: I get it, man. Once you're, once you're there vertical, you realize that vertical is overrated and horizontal is the bee's knees. Okay. Wrap this up. 902, 906. Gately reflects that he's always had a giant head and his football coaches had to order special helmets to fit him. His coaches all thought Gately had unlimited potential in football until he dropped out of high school. His head on the football field was described like a cow catcher when they'd give him the ball and roll him into the end zone. Gately made many friends showing off his head's indestructibility. He specifically has a Prince Valiant haircut to cover up his mangled ears from these years of events. Despite his size and the crowds he ran with, Don was never a bully. He just never had an interest in hurting the weak. At nine, he had both smoked his first cigarette and gotten, first gotten drunk. Uh, The drink from a Nazi Orkin man who liked to give kids screwdrivers and ramble to them about the Turner Diaries and the Jewish-controlled government. Uh, Brief detail. I had a guy like that. Wasn't a Nazi. He was a born-again Christian, and he was our bus driver. And uh, he would buy me and my teenage friends booze and give us weed and then talk to us about the rapture and that there would only be 130,000 left. And, uh, yeah, I I liked arguing with him, and then I stopped being invited to those little law-breaking
2: deviant shindigs. Um, unrelated, I do like the Tennis Academy aspect. I do think it's a good grounding for the book. Like when he's talking about tennis in the academy, I'm in. Yeah. Other, other places, I'm not. Um, but it's definitely a good uh, home base for the story.
0: You know what's funny? I really didn't like, and at, at first in the book, I really liked the people in Ennit, and I didn't like the Enfield stories quite as much and unfortunately, a lot of that is easy to do because they'll just spend like hundreds of pages apart from each other, especially in like the early chunks of the book. But um, yeah, I don't know. I had a thought, it flew away. Let me keep reading. Um, oh yeah. Uh, when all Don's friends mainly cared about pussy, Gately still cared about football. He was considered special ed with ADD and bad language skills, but part of this was his mother was terrible at reading and not so great at teaching him. <laughs> He befriended Trent Kite, a nerd who loved Grateful Dead and making drugs at home. A footnote informs us he was one of the people who helped Gately break into homes and that the AFR got a hold of him and did unspeakable things to his person. Gately remembers this era of life as attack of the killer sidewalks due to his sudden passing out on chemicals. During this time, Gatelyn was still disciplined that this never interfered with football, only indulging after sunset and catching up on sleep after, uh, during school until it caught up to him and affected his grades. English teachers are what fucked him. I can be honest. Every teacher that ever fucked me was an English teacher. Interesting. Well, you know what it was? I would get a lot of, uh, we would get like writing assignments in like early high school and it would be, they would still be doing like basic, like, you know, first paragraph introductory statement, the three topics that will become your upcoming paragraphs. And I was so beyond that and not to not to toot my own horn. I was pretty good at writing an English paper by that point. But uh but yeah, I would get like kind of weird and fuck around with them a little bit and try to have fun. And if I had a cool English teacher, I had more than one English teacher say, like, you didn't follow the directions, but it's too good to give anything less than a B. And then I had other teachers who just didn't care and just gave me D's. So
2: Yeah can you can you sometimes it's too free i like, have like a book report when you're like in eighth grade and you're just like well what am i supposed to write about like how can i it's, it's daunting and it kind of turns people off also i don't i don't want to get into it but like the curriculum i had in public school and outside of philly like you mm-hmm. um why was i reading like romeo like like uh, uh the odyssey in eighth grade i had like no idea what was going on i should mm-hmm. been reading easier books the odyssey is difficult to read i did a podcast about it i'm 40. um yeah i think really- you reading easier books that turn you on to reading when you're in middle school yeah, there is a lot of that shit
0: where they just, they want to overdo it on the classics and it ends up just turning people off of reading forever. Like, by the time I got into high school, I felt like they dealt with a lot of that. Like, dude, one of my English classes, we did uh, a few weeks on just, not even the book, The Album, The Wall by Pink Floyd. and That's kind of cool. I, I honestly think it's great. It's showing a different method of storytelling, you know? And it might yeah. have had something to do with my love of concept albums, which exist to this day. But yeah, thinking back, can you think of any particular teacher that like kind of screwed you over at some point or like I one of the things we realize as we get older is like I feel like you go through a weird thing when you're little where you're like, oh, that teacher has something out for me. And then you get a little older, like, oh, that was probably just me projecting. And then you get a little bit older still and you go, oh, wait, no, that guy definitely fucking hated me.
2: Um. I had, I had I had a substitute teacher one time and made a comment to me. It was like it was like an acquaintance's mom and she was a sub. And like I think I was goofing around in class and she was like, and her son was really smart and we were friends in like third grade. She was like, Josh, you used to have so much potential and now look at you. Man, and I was like 12. <laughs> I was like, that's verbally abusive to talk to a 12-year-old like that. Like just because you have your own editorial, like, don't, don't, don't say that. But and I remember that to this day, obviously, because I, I I'm thinking about it 30 years later.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I still remember that. I remember being like 11 or 12. And this one teacher who is notoriously mean to kids, which like, why the fuck did you become a teacher? Right. Uh, in one class, I had a friend, Chris, who had a, a lateral lisp over on the side. And this teacher, Mr. Skibby, like it, he had him reading something out loud and he interrupted him to go, how long have you had this speech impediment? Like everybody remembers this asshole
2: to this day. Yeah, I was big. I'm like six seven now, but I was six seven when I was twelve. so People would forget oh, how young shit. I was. I had a beard, and people would just be like, treat me like I was an adult, and I was twelve. So I, I had to deal with that too. Oh wow, okay, wow, you would have fit
0: right into the incandenza family with that height. Do you have any? <laughs> do you have any other weird uh, little anecdotes about being that high? Like people treating you like shit when you're too young? Like you uh, being intimidated
2: by you. No, but I played a lot of basketball and people would be like, you're a waste of height. You're a waste of this. And I'm like, you don't know what it's like to be this tall. Like, I don't say anything about you. You know, it's just, I felt no. like it was an unnecessary pressure. No like, I just knows. want to shoot breeze. I don't want to go down low.
0: No one knows what it's like to be the tall man. I actually have a weird thing. I've had people tell me this, that like, they've seen me in photos with my friends and they meet me and they expect me to be short. Despite being like 6'2", all my friends are over 6'5". I don't know why I do this to myself. It's almost like punishing. Like, I don't deserve the height, so I surround myself with taller gentlemen.
2: I just found out Rachel Maddow was like 5'11", and my mind was blown. I would never have picked... Hold on. Perry, come in here. (laughs) Hold on.
0: My fiance loves Rachel Maddow, so I will drag her. Guess what? You're making a guest appearance. So uh, this is my guest, Josh. You cannot see Josh, but still wave hi. hi. Josh, this is my fiancee, Perry. Did you know that Ra- we're talking about people who you don't realize are that tall? Do you know Rachel Maddow is almost six feet tall?
2: I didn't.
0: Yeah, she's 5'11". Would you have ever pictured that?
2: Nope. Right, I just, I, go- just I clicked on something them. online. I was like, celebrities who are taller That's than you think. Agnes. And she was like, huge. Wow,
0: okay. what was that about Spiro Agnew?
2: Um, it was one of these things online, like celebrities who are taller than you think. And I clicked on it because I was bored online. And Rachel Maddow, sure enough, is 5'11". Sometimes
0: sometimes those are the best, dumbest articles to read on the internet. Because you find it. a little shit out of that. What did you say about Spiro Agnew, babe?
2: Well, also just side note, what's funny is I've seen her live <laughs> and I still didn't realize she was that tall, but I'm also short. So everyone looks tall. <laughs> um, no, she, so she did a podcast called Bagman about Spiro Agnew. And now she just wrote a book about it. Oh, just came out. Really? Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, there you go. Go check that that's out. That's my uh,
2: fun fact for the day.
0: All right. Thanks for joining babe. I knew you'd like that Rachel Maddow anecdote. Yeah. Thank you for that. It was fun to yank her on for a second. Um, okay. Back on. English teachers are what fucked him. The athletic department begged them to just like Gately pass, pointing out that he had a bad home life. And if they failed him, it would ruin pretty much his only real potential in the world. A chance to excel at football. He flunked out sophomore year and that was it. He dropped out intending to return the next year, but with nothing to discipline himself for, he got fat and further addicted. And when he came back, he seemed like a confused kitten on the field. Trent Kite had been admitted to college early and his tutoring was the only thing that prevented Gately from flunking other classes. Then he got benched. Then his mother had her hemorrhage that rendered her invalid and he never went back to school after that day all right and that's the end of our notes there i do uh, that's so fucking sad when you hear that because i feel like uh this is another thing that happened predominantly in the 90s when people were talking about how um college athletics and like oh they're they're giving scholarships to people who can't even read shit like that
2: yeah that happened um question for you before we finish up i feel like i hear some ambivalence in your voice i feel like you're in a bar from 10 years from now and someone asked you if you got infinite chest I feel like you won't say that you hate it. It's it's more complicated than that, no. It's it's definitely complicated. I mean
0: Honestly, it's more complicated than when I started because before the, the entire thing with this was it wasn't that I hate the book. It was that I tried reading it before and I got 400 pages in and eventually I'm like, why the fuck am I doing this? And then I had enough arguments with people who like, oh, that's the best book ever. Like I, it wasn't like, oh fuck you. It was, I don't believe you. Cause I couldn't see what anybody even liked about it. So that was the whole thing was I wanted to get in and I wanted to find out at least what the appeal was and while i found that while i found there's plenty in the book to like the stuff that i don't like is still such a turnoff that i can't imagine people not only like liking that side of it like the the unfinishedness the the long rambling rants the detail upon detail this thing has so much be- this this book is like 80% background and 20% like story movement
2: yeah, I yeah, I just the bang for the buck just isn't there. And I love him; he's one of my favorite authors. ever. I have a section of like importance. He's third in authors, mm-hmm. um, but this is not his best book. The bang for the buck is just not there. Yeah, that's
0: uh, it's the same conclusion I'm getting. And like I said, I was coming around to it in parts, but now that I'm coming to the end, and I'm like, everything about this book has just been a tease. Just like, well, if you go a little further, it will it will reveal itself unto you, and that never it ever just, have it just?
1: Uh,
0: yeah i don't know i think this was a good episode but i
2: don't think i've ever felt as
0: disappointed at the end of
2: an episode how many pages do you have left like 50 before the footnotes or how many
0: well we're 80? not go- we're not going to cover the footnotes uh separately but yeah. um so this one went to 906 so after this it's like another 75 pages two and a half three episodes yeah yeah, exactly. No, there's going to be two episodes after this, and then I'm going to do something cheeky. I'm going to have my first two guests back on, and we're going to do the real the end of the podcast, which is to go back and revisit the first thirty pages.
2: Well, for people who care, I think you should check out the Pale King instead. If, if you're come this far, you probably have read it in Jesse's podcast, but the Pale King he gets to a lot of the gets rid of a lot of the excess and the self uh, uh, consciousness that Morris is writing here. It's, it's more straightforward and I'm happy for him in that book.
0: Okay. Yeah. I definitely, like. I, said, I I don't know if I'll make a podcast about it, but I would love to read the pale King specifically on something like that, uh, that kind of recommendation as somebody who recognizes the faults, as opposed to loving them, just because so much of this book, it, it reads to me as compulsion and lack of discipline, which, yeah. I mean, just knowing this book was once an extra 600 pages longer. And then that got Taken out, like what the fuck got taken out if this is what got left,
2: you know? Yeah, how how, how awesome can it be if you write 1800 pages? Like, come on, exactly.
0: Ugh. All right, buddy. so we could go on forever, but I know you uh got to get on with your day and uh take care of them kids there. So thanks again for coming on the show, Josh. Anish, should you read this before Anish? I don't know why I said that, Anish. Um, <laughs> Should you read this before you die? Um, again, yeah. Anything else? Can we find you somewhere on social media, or do you say off?
2: Uh, should you read before you die? Uh, the acronym is on Twitter. Check it out. Uh, we're going to have a new episode coming out about Dune, which I find to be very boring. Um, <laughs> can, uh, somebody, on,
1: Jesse.
0: somebody just messaged me and said I should do a series on Dune, and I'm very much considering it. So,
2: there's a new. One. Anyway, thanks for having me. Good luck with the podcast, and I'll check it out. All right, man.
0: Sounds good. I'm going to stop recording now, but I'll give you a more formal goodbye.